Amen. Thank you, Bonnie and Linda, as always. Now, if you have your Bibles, please open them up to Genesis chapter 45. And we're going to go through the rest of Genesis chapter 45 and then a little bit into chapter 46. Um, all right, so what's happened previously? Basically, what happened last week was... Yeah, we, yeah. Anyway, last week was Joseph finally had the big reveal. Um, he finally told his brothers, I'm Joseph. I'm the one you sold into slavery. And naturally with that, the brothers would be scared because, wait a minute, we sold our brother into slavery and now he is a ruler in probably one of the strongest kingdoms at the time, if not the strongest. And so the question is, what's, what's Joseph going to do with them then? But Joseph alleviates their fears. He, he answers them with wisdom and he, he, he gives them peace about everything that's gone on. And he concludes his very long speech by asking that they go back to Canaan and bring Jacob to Egypt. Um, and so that's kind of where we left off. We left off with him asking them of that and then them just sitting and talking as brothers. So now we're going to find out what happens next. Starting with verse 16. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come, it pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, Do this. Load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me. And I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, Do this. Take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. All right. So at this point in Joseph's narratives, we learn what occurs after Joseph made his request to his brothers to bring Jacob. As it is, Pharaoh learns that Joseph's brothers have arrived. And this is likely due to the fact that everyone heard his emotional um, response previously. We had actually talked about that. Still, we learn two things, and that is that it did not anger Pharaoh, but it pleased both him and his servants. Thus, Pharaoh offers them even more in a way than Joseph did. Joseph had offered them the land of Goshen. Meanwhile, Pharaoh is offering them um, all to come with all of their possessions. The entire family is to come to Egypt, and it is in Egypt where Pharaoh will give them the best land. Jacob and the family would be well secured. Thus, Pharaoh offers um, a great deal to the family to stay and live in Egypt. But they're not to do this all on their own. Pharaoh also offers wagons in order to provide faster and safer travel. They would have enough in order to reach Egypt, and they would all arrive through Pharaoh's generosity especially. Like Joseph, there is concern that the family would stay in Canaan. Thus, Pharaoh alleviates this by proclaiming that the best Egypt has is theirs. Um, And so all of them are called, come down to Egypt. You will be safe and you will be secure, and um, all will be well with you in this land. So then it goes to verses 21 through 24. The sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father he sent as follows, ten donkeys loaded with good things of Egypt, and ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed he said to them, Do not quarrel on the way. Um... So we learn that the brothers do all these things. Joseph is faithful to provide the wagons for the journey. Likewise, he gives them necessary provision for the return to Canaan as well as on the way back. Thus, they would be able to eat on their way. But not only this, he gives them more than was even necessary. He gives each of them a change of clothes, a new tunic. Interestingly, 
the very thing which they had been jealous over, he provides for them now. Though Benjamin does receive more with silver and more changes of clothes. To Jacob, there is also sent a caravan of gifts. Uh, there were ten donkeys with a number of gifts on them from Egypt. Likewise, there are ten more female donkeys, which had food and various provisions for Jacob's journey, if he should come. With everything that is needed provided for, he sent them to Canaan. But in the process, he also tells them not to quarrel. Um, this could be a reflection of a few different things, and scholars note it. It could reflect them literally not quarreling with each other. They've been known to do that. Um, it could also reflect not being afraid of bandits on the way, because quarrel there doesn't necessarily mean to, to quarrel. It can mean a little bit more than that. Don't be afraid. Finally, it could reflect them not being timid or afraid of returning to Egypt for fear of some kind of retribution yet to come. Any and all of these might be the cause for Joseph to say this, though they're not really exclusive either, are they? I mean, he could have said that in a way of don't be afraid of the bandits, but also don't be afraid to come back and don't be afraid of each other or anything else that's going on. Um, thus, it could be any one of them. We're not really sure why he said that the way he did. Still, they go down and they go to, uh, we go to verses 25 and 28. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they said to him, Joseph is still alive and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of, his, of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. So now we come to the next unanswered question. With everything that has transpired, how will Jacob react? Will he believe his sons? Will he leave Canaan? What will become of Jacob moving forward? So we learn that the brothers are obedient and go down to Jacob. And once arriving, they inform him that his beloved son Joseph, he's still alive. Not only is he alive, but he's a ruler over all of Egypt. How might one expect Jacob to receive that news? Well, exactly as he reacts. We're told his heart went numb because of disbelief. He could not believe that Joseph was still alive after 20 years of mourning over him. Not only was he alive, but far more prosperous than any of them had imagined. No, it can't be. It can't be. But his sons managed to persuade him otherwise. They tell him of all the words that Joseph had said. And one would imagine that much of what Joseph had said concerning God being the one who brought him into Egypt in the first place, it would cause Jacob to remember the dreams and how they had come to fruition. Because as we remember, when he first heard the dreams, we're told that he thought about them, thought about what they could mean. So not only this, but when he sees the ample amount of gifts which are accompanying his sons, he cannot help but now believe. The evidence is there. This causes, as the text say, his spirit to be revived. His numb heart beats, and he believes what his sons are saying. Thus, the conclusion of this chapter, it ends with a triumph. As Jacob speaks the truth, his son is still alive. This knowledge gives him the strength to go down to Egypt before he dies. And this is all very fascinating, especially as we consider the previous times that Jacob has spoken in the last few chapters. He has said, my son is torn to bits, and if Benjamin goes, I will go down to Sheol, and surely you will bring me down to Sheol. Now his son is alive, and he will go down not to Sheol, 
but go down to Egypt to see his beloved son. Now, we're going to go on to the next chapter just for four verses, just for emphasis. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hands shall close your eyes. At this point in the story, Jacob takes all he has, his family and his possessions, and went to Beersheba. Beersheba was almost the southern point, or really was, the southernmost point of the land of Canaan. As such, this is where he goes right before crossing the threshold. But as it is, he does not immediately cross. Instead, he offers sacrifices to God. And doing so reminds us that though he is willing to go to Egypt, he also desires God's blessing. As such, a sacrifice makes perfect sense prior to this journey. Presumably, that evening God gave him uh, a vision, gave Jacob a vision. The way that God speaks to Jacob initially is reminiscent of both Abraham, who came before him, and Moses, who will come after. Just like Jacob, both Abraham and Moses respond to God with, here I am. Um, God then reveals himself as the God of Isaac. Throughout Jacob's narrative, we find God revealing himself as the God of Jacob's father and grandfather. Thus, this brings all those previous encounters together. Likewise, as Wenham notes, um, one of the scholars I read, it acts as a prelude to the calling of Moses, where God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob now. Still, God gives peace to Jacob by letting him know not to worry about going down to Egypt. Now, one has to wonder what would cause Jacob to be afraid of going down to Egypt. Um, the likeliest reason is that he will no longer be in the promised land. What will happen if we, he were to go? Does the promise cease? The answer is not at all. Even in the land of their sojourn, God will make Jacob into a great nation. This promise goes all the way back to Abraham, who was first promised a great nation in Genesis 12. As such, Jacob being promised it again reminds us of the previous promise, but it also tells us the faith of Jacob in going, that he is trusting in God despite leaving the promised land. But as it is, Jacob has no real reason to fear at all, because like his forefathers, God has promised to be with Jacob. He will go down to Egypt with him. This again reminds us that God is God of all, not just a particular land. He has just as much power in Canaan as he does in Egypt. This promise of God being with Jacob gives reassurance that Jacob will be brought up again. This is interesting as it points to two things. The first is Jacob himself. He will personally be brought back to Canaan and rest with his fathers in Canaan. Likewise, it points far into the future when the people of Jacob will be brought out as well. Thus we see again a prelude to the Exodus. Finally, God makes a promise to Jacob that he will see Joseph before he passes. Indeed, that Joseph will be there when he passes away. This is a very heartfelt moment in my mind and in the minds, if you really think about it, in the grand scheme of things. Jacob had missed his beloved son for so many years. God knows the desires of Jacob's heart in this moment and grants those desires in the moment. Thus, we find God's compassion on Jacob in his very old age. Um, and that actually concludes, too. This is the last time God is speaking in Genesis. So that's the last time that God specifically speaks. 
So, with that, we get to the main point. The main point of these verses is to describe the brothers' return to Canaan, as well as Jacob's decision to go down to Egypt as well. Despite all that has occurred over the last 20 years, years of guilt, grief, and sorrow, Joseph and Pharaoh offer the family um, to live life as the family is invited to Egypt. Not only invited to dwell in any place, but the best lands that Pharaoh has to offer. As such, the brothers return, informing Jacob of these things, and despite his first bout of disbelief, he ends up being convinced because of the evidence and decides to go to Egypt to see Joseph before he passes away. Yet, this leads directly to Jacob making a sacrifice, after which God reveals himself to Jacob, letting him know that he will be with Jacob and ultimately all of his line in Egypt. Indeed, that in the end, God himself will be the one to bring them out of Egypt. All right. So, this entire story of Jacob and his family, it fascinates me. In it, we find a family who goes from guilt-laden to reconciliation. Indeed, even further, we go from a worn-out, exhausted Jacob to a Jacob who has life. We go from a family on the brink of death to a family who has been promised and guaranteed life. What does it require? All that it requires is for them to leave the promised land and to settle in a foreign land. That sounds reasonable, right? When you really think about it. It sounds completely normal for us to have waited all this time in Genesis, since Genesis 12, just for the whole family to leave the land of promise and enter into the land of Egypt. I suspect all of us who have ever read it for the first time really expected that to happen, didn't you? I think once we all go back to the story and look at it from the perspective of never reading it before, we would all, even now, when we really think about it, be a little surprised to see where this is all heading. The family in a foreign land. As such, it is interesting for us to consider it all. In order for the family to survive, it is necessary for them to go to Egypt. It is necessary for them to not have all the promises fulfilled. It is necessary for preservation and life for the family to do this. I think that this aspect of the story is important for a number of different reasons. The first is that it reminds us of how God often works. He works in unexpected ways. Things that we would find harmful, God often turns to our benefit. Things that seem tragic, very often God turns into wonder and joy. People we would never expect, God very often lifts up for his glory. We see this especially in the crucifixion. Who could have imagined that through the suffering and death of Jesus Christ, God would redeem us? How something as tragic as the death of God's only begotten Son would bring us from death to life. That death itself, to be defeated, would first have to be tasted. So in a strange way, we can expect to find the unexpected with God when it comes to the scriptures. In some way, he purposefully brings about his purposes and in ways often unlooked for. Whether it be abundance from famine or even life from death, in the end, God shows his plan and his sovereignty through it all. But that leads to the second point. 
And that like Jacob, we as individuals can be called to places where we might not normally go. Our obedience to God can often lead us to paths which we would not have walked apart from God taking our hand. We see this with salvation itself, as it is God who brings salvation. From this salvation, we turn away from our sin and then turn toward God with our lives in sanctification and in repentance. I can see this from the many lives we find in church history, Christian history. Men and women who have been so greatly changed. And with that comes lives of obedience and faithfulness. Individuals we would not have expected. Individuals who were like Paul, persecutors, turned into vessels of God's glory. And I can even make a point for myself about all this. If you were to ask me when I was a child... If my goal, my life goal, was to become a pastor or preach or teach, I would have laughed and walked away. Growing up, I had a great fear of public speaking. I still kind of do. And now when I say a great fear, I mean I hated it. We had, you know, literature class. The goal is literature, not public speaking. I'm just saying. Still makes me mad. She knows it. Anyway, now here I am though. I still do have a bit of fear. But God can use even those of us who have such fears for his own purposes. Indeed, leading us each on quite the unexpected course. Likewise, with Jacob, we can see how it doesn't matter one's age when it comes to these things. God does not only call the young to obedience and faithfulness, but the old as well. Jacob is nearing the end of his life by this point, yet he continues to sacrifice and continues to trust in God even in his old age. And to be honest, there are few greater things to witness than the continued faithfulness of individuals in their old age. But it isn't only with individuals that we see all this occur. Because while it is true that God works in unexpected ways, and it's true that he works in our lives unexpectedly, the third point recognizes the community itself must travel to Egypt. In this, I think we see elements of the church. How God calls individuals to be involved with the local congregation, using our various gifts for his glory. And we know this. But what we get from this passage is that God can very often call even our community, our congregations, in a far different direction than where they had once been, and even change the course from where they think they need to go. This seems incredibly important for especially rural congregations across the United States. I know that while there seems to be evidence of God fearing individuals in places such as ours, and there is, in the end, the majority of small town and rural churches are similar to what we find in Westfield. That is, they are congregations who have faithful members, but as time has gone on, they're starting to see our society isn't in Kansas anymore. I suspect we all see that. We all see how much change has occurred over the last few decades. It makes me think of youth group recently. Pastor Kyle was asking them the question if they lied or if they lie. You know, I kind of do that to you guys once in a while, don't I? Now, not only did they say, of course, but then they even said that they purposefully did so. Purposefully. Now, I remember growing up and recognizing that there was a sense in which we recognized that there was a wrongness to lying. Yet here we see individuals who are growing up 
who might recognize it as wrong, maybe, but they actually seem very apathetic to that point. They just don't care that it's wrong. Now, I use this as an example in order to further establish the point. We are seeing a growing post-Christian society around us. Unfortunately, many congregations in our small towns and our rural areas continue to believe that we continue as we have done as if nothing has changed. We find far too often congregations who continue to believe that it's the 60s, 70s, or 80s, or earlier, if you really want to. And in the process, we ignore that we are in a severe famine. When our congregations are closing their doors... And when we find so many ignoring the church and historical Christian faith, I think we can call this a famine. Unfortunately, the famine is much of our own making because we have cheapened the gospel in the past, and now that past is coming back to haunt us. And we kind of talked about this today in Sunday school. So then you ask, Pastor, what should we do? Well, first we need to recognize that we need to be faithful to the historic Christian faith being faithful to proclaim the gospel of Christ in accordance with the scriptures and all that entails. And second, we need to realize that with the change in society, that we might need to change accordingly. In other words, it is possible a drastic change is necessary in order for us to be most faithful and obedient to God. We may need to accept that God may be very well calling us away from Canaan and into Egypt. That is, the things we had been doing And where we think we need to be might be very different than what God desires. God purposefully sent Joseph in order to preserve life. Jacob is to go to Egypt with his family in order to find life. It may be very well the case that with our congregations, and I say that are, as in a lot of small town rural areas, that we can no longer be floating aisles separate from one another. It may be time for us to recognize the differences of our past are not nearly as significant as the death of our future. It might be time for many of our small town rural congregations to ask not what do we want. It might be time to begin asking not what we can not now to begin asking what we can do to preserve not what we can do to preserve our past and our present, but how we can best preserve the future. But far more importantly, we need to ask what would most glorify God? You would think that such a question would be harmless (laughs) until you begin to realize that the answer may rock what we consider foundational and what we consider most important. But what do we find with Jacob, though? God is with him and his family. Even in this moment of great importance when so much change is occurring, God is still with his people. If it comes time for many of our congregations to begin asking the hard questions, we can find comfort and peace knowing that God is no less with us than he is with Jacob and the family as they go to Egypt. Not only this, but we can also trust that if God is leading us out of Canaan and into Egypt, that there is hope that it is for a purpose. For it is in Egypt that there was abundance, not only of food, but also with the promise that inheritance of offspring would come to fruition in the land of their sojourn. That is life. As such, if we ask these hard questions and come to hard answers, perhaps what God will remind us of is that in his will, there is preservation of life. 
And maybe, just maybe, following God by faith into these places will lead not to our hearts being weakened, but strengthened by God's faithfulness. When it comes to what will happen with so many congregations, I can only guess. What I do know, though, is that God is faithful regardless of where he calls each of us individually, personally, but also corporately. It is our responsibility as individuals and as a congregation to seek God's will and humbly follow wherever that might lead us. This is why, in the end, I entitled this point, The Unexpected Course to Life. Because in the end, Jacob and his family are passing from the shadow of death into the light of life. They are not taking the road they would have expected. We wouldn't have expected it if we're really reading Genesis. But that should not surprise us, should it? Our God's ways are often more mystery to us than not. His ways often lead us on an unexpected course. But what's promised and what's guaranteed is that that course leads to life. I should have gotten this out beforehand, sorry. All right. And so, naturally, this leads us to the gospel. I mean, even all of this leads us to the gospel, and it begins with our origins, right? You know, Jacob wouldn't exist if God did not first create him. The same with each of us. God, if God were not existing himself, then none of this would be here. We wouldn't be able to know each other. We wouldn't have personalities in this very wonderful gift of life. So God existing and him doing things and him beginning it all is a glorious thing. And with that, you know, comes the fact that we learn about who we are in this book of Genesis. We've learned that we are created in the image of God. And that is a wonderful thing because our world hates that teaching for some reason. Our world hates the fact that we are created in the image of God. Even though it's such a wonderful teaching. It doesn't make any sense to me. Because it's from there that we all have dignity and worth to life and sanctity to life. No matter who you are, no matter what your age, no matter what your race, in the end, you are made in the image of God if you are a human person. And we rejoice in this. The problem, though, comes with the fall. And with the fall comes hazards. With the fall comes brokenness and famines. Sin causes what it is that we are experiencing in many of our congregations across the United States. Sin causes so much of the hostility in this world. The effects of sin are so incredibly deep with all of us. From the hardness of our hearts, to our willingness to hurt each other, to the kids' willingness to lie, just for the sake of it. And because of that, we deserve judgment. It's not as though we're unworthy of getting judged by God. We are very worthy of it. Because we willingly break these connections and we willingly go against them. So the question is, how can we find redemption? And we find redemption through Jesus Christ by God acting in the world. And this is the wonderful thing about Christianity is that God is not a God who is just out there, but he has sent his very son into our world to redeem us from the world. And that is a beautiful thing. And we find this redemption. And God is even giving them redemption in Genesis. You see it, don't you? They're in death. They're literally facing death in the face. There's famine and they don't have anything to eat. What's going to happen? 
God says, I sent Joseph for you. Same thing with each of us. Same exact thing. The only difference is we don't have a Joseph. We have Jesus. And his redemption is far greater. And so we have redemption through faith in Jesus Christ and his life, death, and resurrection. And we rejoice over his life, death, and resurrection. And we celebrate his life, death, and resurrection today. And where does it lead? Well, we actually learned actually where it led. I should have underlined this one, shouldn't I? Because if they follow and they go down to Egypt, God promised something. Do you remember what that was? A nation (laughs) within a nation. A nation out of Egypt. Leads to glory for us. The nation of God is what we are part of. And that nation is going to shine forever. So as we consider all this from Joseph's story, and as we consider our own lives, let us not forget the lessons we are learning about the gospel within the pages of the scriptures. Because God is always teaching us these things. And he's always reminding us, Jesus Christ, his son, saves and brings life. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for all that you have done, for all that you continue to do through your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we look ahead to our future, and as we consider what it is that you've led so many individuals and so many communities to, Lord, we ask that you would give our hearts wisdom and knowledge, because we always have to be seeking these things. We always have to be seeking how to preserve life according to your will, Lord. And so, Lord, like them, let us be faithful and let us be obedient and humble before you, and let us trust in your will. Let all the congregations in this nation trust your will, because in the end, that's what we need to be doing, because it brings life. Obedience brings life. And so, Lord, we ask that you would be with all of us, that you would continue to guide our steps, that you would continue to guide this congregation into your glory. And we thank you so much for all that you do, for you are truly marvelous, truly wonderful in all of your ways. We thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Please rise as we sing our second to last hymn.